Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. And it's great to be back in Skybridge HQ today uh, here in Midtown Manhattan. We're slowly starting to get back to normal. Uh, but SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period. And it's been sort of a blessing in disguise because we've had a lot of fun doing these digital talks and their interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do is replicate the experience that we provide at our Global Salt Conference series, which unfortunately we had to cancel our uh, Las Vegas conference in May. But what we're trying to do is both empower big, important ideas that we think are shaping the future, as well as provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. And we're very excited today to welcome Jason Cummins to Salt Talks. Uh, Jason is the head of research and the chief U.S. economist at Brevin Howard. Uh, in his role at the firm, he develops their outlook for the economy, politics, and markets, and advisors, advises the traders on portfolio management and manages the global research team. He also serves on, uh, as a trustee on the boards of the Brookings Institution, the executive committee, and the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He's also on the executive committee there. And he's a member of the investment committee of Swarthmore College. Uh, he was the, previously the chairman of the U.S. Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee, which is a government-appointed panel that advises on debt management, market structure, and financial developments. Uh, previous to that, Jason was a senior economist at the Federal Reserve Board, uh, where he led the macro forecasting team. He began his career as an assistant professor of economics at NYU, and he also taught at Harvard University. Reminder, if you have any questions for Jason during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Skybridge Co-Chief Investment Officer, Partner, and Senior Portfolio Manager, Troy Gajewski. Uh, and Troy, I'll turn it, over to you to the uh, turn it over to you for the interview. Yeah, thanks so much, John. And thanks, everybody, for joining us for another uh, very enlightening SALT Talks. And, you know, Jason, it's such an honor to have you on today's uh, episode here. You know, you have such a rich history, not only in capital markets, but academia and other other areas. Could, could you take us through, you know, the progress of your career and, and how you got to where you are today and, and how passionate you are still about the work you do day in and day out? Uh, thanks. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm broadcasting here from Phoenix. And actually, we ended up in Phoenix because we wanted to be able to send our kids to school in person full time. Uh, so we had to move around the country and make some adjustments just like a, a lot of people. But I grew up on the West Coast and I mentioned that because of my background that's related to one of the things that we're gonna talk about today, which is I grew up in a very political family. My uncle was the congressional representative from the fourth district of Oregon. My dad was an anti-Vietnam uh, war activist. And so from a very early age, I was exposed to everything from the kind of passive by osmosis uh, politics of having uh, pictures of Eugene McCarthy on the wall with campaign posters to, um, you know, really crazy discussions when we were having our Sunday dinners about politics. So we'll talk some about politics today, but my interest in it goes all the way back from, from when, I was a, when I was a young kid. I went to uh, Swarthmore College, as you mentioned, um, I'm on the investment committee there, and one of the things that maybe doesn't come out so well in the bio is two strains of our kind of investment and commitment are one, at Brevin Howard, we take public service very seriously. So I spend a lot of time on the boards at Brookings and at the Peterson uh, Institute for International Economics, as well as giving back to Swarthmore because we feel that's a really um, important role for the firm that comes all the way from the top where Alan's engagement is really second to none in terms of founding a center at Imperial uh, of Excellence in Finance uh, to his um, excellent work with uh, some Jewish charities. And uh, so we all try and invest in that. And I'd also say a key thing that comes out there that you didn't mention about my background is that I really take um, not an academic approach to markets, but we have a background in really academic training and studying economics and finance. So I got a PhD at Columbia under Glenn Hubbard and Kevin Hassett both of whom were chief economists for Republican uh, presidents, W and then uh, this president. And then I went down to NYU as a professor. And so I met a lot of the people who are involved in the policy discussion now when I was just a junior faculty member. And I've continued on with them over time and overlap with them in these various public service areas and professionally as well. 
But the strain of my career has moved increasingly toward markets. As I started out as a professor, then I went to the central bank where I learned uh, really the art of teamwork as well as forecasting and what goes on in central banks, and then going with Alan to build my own team here at Brevin. And I like to joke, you know, we're now in our 17th year um, of, uh, of uh, my leadership here. I was the first employee outside of London, first employee in the U.S. And we um, had a run where we've enjoyed the ups and downs of the industry and had our own ups and downs as a firm. But we really feel like um, this is a good environment for macro and it's a great um, time for our firm as well. We think about it as kind of Brevin Howard 2.0 as we've launched um, more initiatives under Aaron Landy, who are, who's our new CEO's leadership. Yeah, that's a great uh, background on your success and all the success that Brevin Howard's had. You know, we all had a really tough time watching that debate last night. I mean, it was such a disaster. But, you know, that being said, obviously, politics, the upcoming election is a huge driver of markets right now. And so when you guys are trying to model out various scenarios, what do you think the most likely outcome is in terms of the way the government split post-election? So if you put, if you analyze this race with your left brain, your analytical side of your brain, and this is a lot of the kind of content you see coming out of 538 and other kinds of election watchers, it's really never been a particularly close race. Biden has led from uh, start to the middle. He has a lead right now um, that is bigger than any lead since Bill Clinton's two um, elections. And so if you're just looking at the numbers, um, we wouldn't even really be having this conversation. We'd be talking about what Biden's uh, policy initiatives were, but we're in anything but a normal environment. And I think the key thing to understand is because the country, um, you know, in the Electoral College favors uh, the states that appeal that uh, Trump voters, it's more likely that Trump has a uh, possibility. So Biden has to get up there and win the popular vote by two, three, four percentage points to kind of be odds on in the Electoral College. And then if you're talking about a seven point lead that he has now, you'd say, well, you're just kind of one polling error away from the president being able to pull it back in. So you can see a way in which this race becomes more interesting, even if you're being quite left brained about it. But I think that misses um, some important new features of this election, uh, really actually unique ones. And what's happened is because of the pandemic, uh, we're going to be suffering and some people enjoying uh, new methods of voting, which are going to necessarily make it almost impossible to adjudicate this race on the timeline that people have grown used to. And what I mean by that is you take a state like uh, Michigan, you're going to be allowed to do mail-in ballots and mail-in ballots will be in transit and uh, have a safe harbor all the way up to the 17th of November. And so you're talking about if there's um, well, certainly any kind of dispute, but any kind of closeness in that race, uh, it's going to be the case that you won't be able to call a Michigan for weeks after the election. And Michigan's not unique. The same is true for in-transit ballots in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania, uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, recently, just over the last few days, Ohio carved out a safe harbor for this. So it's a unique election in that regard, which makes it so that it's very hard to call. Um, I think the thing that then combines with that is a couple other features, which is that there are going to be a huge number of legal challenges because of all this new methods of voting. It really is the case that the balloting methods are uh, pretty complicated and prone to, I think, mistakes. I don't see a lot of malfeasance out there. Uh, and then the president also is someone who, you know, for good or for ill, uh, is a breaker of norms and customs. And what people do not have a strong enough appreciation of, although they're beginning to understand it from that uh, now pretty well-known uh, Atlantic article that was circulated last week about the potential for a disputed election. What people really don't understand is that there's election law in the United States, and then a lot of elections are really governed by norms and customs. We do not have a good way to adjudicate um, contested elections. And I challenge anyone to go and read the governing uh, law of this, which is called the Electoral Count Act uh, from 18. Uh, 87, which followed the disputed 1876 election, which is one of the most contested in U.S. history. Um, you can't figure out how to deal with a situation like this. And so we face a very real prospect of seeing things that we've never seen uh, before. And the prior kind of templates that a lot of investors use, I just don't think are particularly useful. I don't think this race is like 2016. I think the 2016 template does more to distort than inform this race. And I don't think the disputed election in 2000 between Gore and, and W was a particularly good example of what could happen uh, here either, except in one regard. 
it was the case that Florida's legislature under Jeb Bush's governorship was ready to send a a slate of electors in favor of uh, W in that election in the event the Supreme Court stopped the counting, which allowed Florida to certify uh, Bush electors. But the state of Florida was willing to send out electors without really the count being known. That is an important precedent to understand because the state of Pennsylvania legislature is already talking about if they perceive that there's fraud, that they'll send out their own slate of uh, electors, in which case it's very hard to figure out who has won the election because, again, we've governed this on norms and customs. You know, Al Gore was gracious enough to concede. Um, In other cases, you know, Nixon in some ways was gracious enough to concede. And so as a consequence, we predict as a baseline a disputed election. I think it's a more than a 50% chance that we won't know the winner of this election for a week or potentially some weeks after. And you saw that alluded to, you started out your question with what happened in the debate last night. There were a number of markers that the president laid down in an otherwise quite uneven and aggressive and kind of self-indulgent performance where he explained what his thought pattern is, which is dispute the election, try and draw it out, get it into hopefully the Senate later on, and there's parts of the Electoral Count Act which suggests that Vice President Pence can decide among these electors. It's a very, very complicated situation, but I think on election night, you normally go into election night thinking you're 0% odds for dispute, and then if information accumulates, you might raise those odds, like in the 2000 election. The way I'm thinking about going this election is I start out a 100% chance that it's disputed, because that's the way this president is, and I'm gonna winnow down those odds by watching, for example, Florida. Florida doesn't have the mail-in ballot uh, problem in the sense that they get all their mail-in ballots before November 3rd, they count them in advance, they come out really quick, and Florida is a mess in a lot of ways, but one thing they do well is they get quick counts out. And so the race could be over by 11 p.m. if Florida goes strongly in favor of Biden, but if it's the case that the president wins, you're gonna then go to these other tipping point states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and so on that are ripe for disruption. You won't even know the count. And you know, just to give you like future casting of this, the 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 networks are not going to call an election um, unless they're absolutely sure that one side is winning. And so, if the president wins Florida, and you go to Pennsylvania, and it's a complicated race, and you're worried about the blue shift and the, the fact that they're balanced in transit, you haven't even counted yet. Fox News, for certain, is not going to call this election. And then you get into this complicated dynamic of the president's surrogates going out and saying it was a was an election where they threw the ballots in the creek and Fox News says you can't decide this. We need to have different electors. And then you're going to end up in a potential constitutional crisis. You definitely don't want to upset Karl Rove. I don't know if you remember the 2012 election, but he got pretty worked up that they called it in his mind early for uh, for Obama when, you know, really Romney had no chance. Um, well, obviously, you're calling for election chaos, but getting through that, let's assume that there is a resolution. And, and we all know that this is going to lead to, to market volatility. We can get into that in a second. But based on the information you have, w- would you be comfortable putting a probability on a Biden victory versus a Trump victory? Or are you just not comfortable doing that? So I'll, I'll throw out a few probabilities and then I'll pick up on something implicit in your question, which is, you know, for a lot of your investors, they don't trade the way we do. We, we're going to we're going to monetize a lot of risk premium in this interregnum period between January 20th and November 3rd. This is a great opportunity for us. But for a lot of your viewers, um, they have longer horizons and they're not going to be concerned about this kind of 60 days of, um, of potential volatility. So I want to pick up on the idea of what's going to happen when you actually have the next president. When it comes to the probabilities, I would give it about a two-thirds probability. Maybe you could walk me down a little bit after last night's debate because the president was so singularly unsuccessful and kind of attracting uh, undecided voters. But I would say that there's probably around a two-thirds chance that our baseline is right that there's a disputed election. That doesn't mean that there's a one-third chance that uh, Biden wins. I think it's still the lion's share of odds are on uh, Biden win. So is it as high as 538 to 80%? Is it as high as the economist estimate, which is over 80%? I think it's over two-thirds, and I'm willing to, to go that far. I think where I differ in the odds is if you're over two-thirds on a Biden win on the presidency, you really should be much more um, higher odds on the Senate flipping Democrat because the errors are correlated. It's not, it's not yeah. the case 
in a big Biden win that um, Danes's lead in Montana is going to be maintained. It's probably the case that he pulls Bullock over the line. It's probably the case that even Lindsey Graham has a tough race. Tillis probably loses by a couple points if Biden's winning by seven. So I would say the odds of uh, Biden are above two thirds, and then the Senate is much more likely if he if he um, if he does win. So then you jump to there will be a new president on January twentieth, and I think you got to keep a couple major themes in mind. In the event of settled, but still divided government, i.e. Trump with a Democratic House or Biden with a Republican Senate, in that situation, I think you need to flip around Wall Street's normal aphorism of divided government is good. In a crisis, when you need to do something, divided government is bad because you're not able to come to an agreement on the various priorities for the country. So you can argue about whether you're in favor of tax cuts or tax increases or spending or less spending. But in this kind of crisis we face now, we will have put off, at least until January 20th, any fiscal deal. Um, We'll need to be doing more in terms of unemployment insurance, state and local support, liability reform, all these sorts of things. And if you're in gridlock, that's bad. So I think Wall Street's normal go-to of divided government is good because government is going to stay out of Wall Street's way. That is not right. You actually need, and something I think we'll talk about later on, just kind of market psychology. One of the main legs that this market stands on is fiscal policy activism. And if that's drawn into question come uh, January, whenever this new government is seated, I think that's enormously bad um, for markets. The other thing I'd say is just, you know, on our odds on scenario, we have dispute plus a Biden sweep as our odds on scenario. In that kind of situation, I also think you need to take a more kind of cinemascope perspective about what the change to Biden is. In my view, this election could be as um, momentous as the 1932 election and the 1980 election. And I cite those two elections Uh, not because they ushered in famous uh, leaders, although I'll mention that in a moment. But those elections were punctuated changes in American politics where you began to swing the pendulum from, in the first instance in 32, an incredibly favorable environment for capital in favor of labor. And that pendulum continued to swing even through the Nixon years, and it began to swing back under Reagan. The Reagan revolution was essentially swinging that pendulum back from favoring labor through the Great Society and the New Deal back to favoring capital. And even though we've had two two two-term Democratic presidents since 1980, it's the case that this kind of move in favor of capital, financial capital, physical capital, intangible capital, has really been almost interrupted in this whole period. Uh, Clinton was basically uh, Wall Street friendly. Obama had Obamacare, which is an important asterisk to my point, but for six years, he wasn't able to legislate his agenda. And for two of those years, he was worried about getting the economy back on its feet. So you've had an environment where what investors need to remind themselves of is a very, very special situation, capital broadly, uh, sees in this current market environment. It's almost unique in American history how favorable we are to financial, physical, and intangible capital. And if Biden's elected, the first and second derivative of that are going to change in every dimension regulation, um, personnel, uh, legislation. And so I think these kind of um, more narrow focus, you know, you take a, a, a guy like Costin at Goldman Sachs doing his earnings analysis for the S&P under a Biden win. I think it's oh so very narrow and misses the big picture that this is a time in history where, you know, you're going to be able to call the trough in the labor share of income uh, on a Biden sweep and it's going to go up. I don't know quite what the slope of this is gonna be, but it's definitely going up. And he's guaranteed it. It's been in front of your face, Troy. He went to Pennsylvania and said, the era of shareholder capitalism is over. Amazon shouldn't pay zero tax. It's right there for people to look at, but Wall Street as it does oftentimes is it uh, tries to figure out a narrative which will rationalize the risk-taking that it's already doing. And that's why Brevin Howard does well in punctuated times because that kind of ends up in a wily coyote moment sometimes. And I'm not saying the Wiley Coyote moment is as soon as we figure out that there's a Biden sweep, but people are eventually going to figure out some pretty simple arithmetic, which is like, you cannot grow the economy fast enough to make up for, as a corporation, the corporate tax going from 21 to 28%. It's just simple arithmetic. You can write it out on a little sheet here. You know, you grow your business an extra 2% or 4%, but your tax rate went up by seven percentage points. Like, that's not bullish for earnings, right? It's bullish 
for the people who are enjoying the benefits of that fiscal expansion. And those people are going to be primarily um, served by these kind of broader, in some ways soft focus, but um, broader goals of inclusion and Green New Deal and all kinds of things. But those may be valid for a lot of people in terms of their politics, but I don't see why they're going to tell me that it's going to be good for growth. I, that's where I diverge from. Yeah, the, Jason, no, I mean, first of all, you make so many good points, and I wanted to let you talk because you expanded upon them so well. Uh, the first would be, it, does, it also amazes us how many people think Biden can win, but the Republicans can hold the Senate, like because that makes no sense at all when you look at the electoral map uh, for reasons you highlighted, particularly tell us. Um, but secondarily, along the lines, from what you're saying, and we completely agree, a Biden-Dem sweep is good for the real economy in terms of more massive fiscal stimulus, but medium to longer term is obviously less friendly to equity markets because of corporate tax rates going higher, capital gains tax rates going higher, et cetera. So first of all, clearly it sounds like you agree with that as assessment, right? Good for the real economy, but less good for I, financial I markets. I would just emphasize, Troy, a point in there that some people may miss, which is there are definitely different timescales here. I think that there's going to be a bullish response. I think you could end up with a blow off top where you test uh, prior peaks in equity and risk. Um, but I think over the medium term, as you say, and you know, economists are a little fuzzy about what the medium term is. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's one year, sometimes it's five years. It needs to be elastic enough so that I don't have to hit what I'm so, so nobody can hold you accountable for messing up. <laughs> but I am, I am making the point that beyond these kinds of movements and sentiment and the shifts that are be necessary to kind of change around some people's portfolios to take advantage and hedge against some of the risk. I do want to point out that it's just going to be a less friendly environment for capital. I'll give you examples on each one of those just very quickly. On physical capital, this sweep would make it so that the taxation of capital, uh, physical capital in terms of depreciation and uh, incentives and so on is higher. It will be less attractive to invest in uh, machinery and software. On financial capital, um, Biden has a plan to tax capital gains at ordinary income. Not good. Ron Wyden, who will be head of Senate finance, has a plan to cap tax capital gains on accrual. So all the, all, the, all the internet bros will have to sell their Google stock at the end of the year to pay tax. And then finally, on intangible capital, which is primarily pharma and tech, Biden has a plan to regulate those. And so in each major sleeve of capital, he has specific plans to push the pendulum back. And so I just think it's naive. It lacks an understanding of history and what the what these forces are, are doing. And the Biden team, you need to remember, the Biden team are the Biden um, regulars, but the Biden team are a core of movement Obama people who want to get stuff done and are frustrated that Obama had six years where he couldn't get anything done. These are movement um not super liberals, but these are movement people who want to get things done. And this idea that he's going to sit around and be Sleepy Joe, I just think, like, remember, FDR was thought of as an amiable playboy. People didn't take him seriously. Ronald Reagan starred in movies with chimpanzees. There was always this picture in people's minds of this cardboard caricature of what they were. FDR was one of the most effective presidents in U.S. history. Ronald Reagan, one of the most effective presidents in U.S. history. This idea that you just have in your mind, like, oh, it's Sleepy Joe, he won't get stuff done. It misses the point that sometimes it's uh, the person rises to the occasion. And the administration, certainly around him, I think will rise to the occasion as well. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's very informative. Um, and clearly, we all expect volatility around the contested election that you think is a higher probability than most. Now, let me take it one step further. And again, we'll we'll put the medium term on here just to give us some wiggle room, right? But, you know, one of the theories behind a Biden victory, Dem sweep, clearly more deficit spending, more fiscal stimulus, not only in the short term, but larger deficits in, in the longer term. And there's a many that have said this could lead to a material decline in the dollar, which, you know, right at the time they were saying that, obviously the dollar strengthened a lot last week just to, you know, give people a little bit of pain for, for their <laughs> efforts, which uh, we always get a kick out of. Um, but, it, but in any event, is that one of the potential outcomes from a Biden victory? Because the, the much higher propensity of uh, even more elevated long-term uh, deficit spending? Or is that still like an overblown kind of macro trade of the day talking point? 
So I, I am naturally a contrarian, but in this case, I strongly support the kind of consensus view that a Biden sweep is bad for the dollar. And let me just go through some of the mechanics of why. So at least I'll sound smart uh, while I'm telling you that I agree with everyone else. Um, normally, when you do a lot of fiscal spending, it pushes up interest rates. It's good for the currency. Um, normally, you might think, well, the government's doing a lot. It might be putting in um, investments into areas that will promote productivity later on. Also good for the currency. So higher rates, higher productivity. This could be potentially um, uh, good for a kind of strong dollar trade. I think it misses the moment again in this situation. The Fed's going to guarantee that interest rates are low. I don't go in for this kind of more journalistic, um, you know, uh, screaming headline of the Fed's going to do MMT or quasi MMT. I, I think that doesn't understand what the Fed is actually doing. But they are going to keep rates low, in which case the benefits that you would normally um, get in, as an investor in the currency from a fiscal expansion aren't there. And in fact, you then think about what the fiscal expansion is going to do. I have no problem with the social justice goals. I can argue for it. I can argue against it. I don't want to get into that area. But I think it's indubitable, indubitable that what you're doing in this situation is that Biden has a plan to tax higher productivity areas of the economy and redistribute it to lower productivity areas of the economy. So now I've just undone the two reasons why fiscal expansion would be good for the dollar. We're actually gonna have lower rates and the likelihood is that probably not gonna be productivity enhancing. You're taking money from the kind of uh, most innovative businesses and giving it to things that are lower valued projects, almost by definition because they aren't being done. So I think just in the, in the kind of more advanced textbook understanding of exchange rates, you'd see that this is bad for the dollar, uh, dollar goes down. But I, I wanna give a more kind of convincing balance sheet uh, style example, which is we run a giant deficit. It's actually getting bigger now after we've gone through some of the pandemic dynamics. We run a giant deficit. And so you just have to ask yourself, if you were a foreign investor financing this deficit, what is the landscape you're facing going forward? It's a very much changed macro landscape. One, the Fed is guaranteeing you that on the risk side of your investments, you're going to have pretty low excess returns. I mean, everything is pretty rich, so it's not the case that investing in stocks has extraordinary expected returns going forward. And the Fed is kind of guaranteed that those returns are low going forward. They've also guaranteed you that you don't make that much money, maybe a bit on a relative basis because there's so many negative rates around the world, but you don't make that much money on U.S. fixed income either. So the Fed has made it so international investors now are being invited to finance yawning, historically unprecedented outside of war, fiscal deficits, uh, where on both sides of fixed income and risk, they're guaranteed low expected returns. Like this is not a very sexy proposition if you're thinking about financing the U.S. So what has to adjust? The relative price of U.S.ness against other countries, and that is the currency. And so I think that the Fed wouldn't even really blink an eye on a 10% uh, broad, orderly, uh, decline in the dollar. I think they'd only really start paying attention to it if it declined 20%, because that's kind of still within the range that we've seen, certainly in this century, but even within the last 10 years. And, and I again, think looks so much of what they do, Jason, is to encourage uh, looser financial conditions, right? So they, they would actually be uh, very happy with a 10% depreciation, right, in order to loosen financial conditions further, no? They would, be, they would be delighted. And let me also give you some texture, which is that People got used to thinking about Trump being a mercantilist and him wanting the dollar lower. Let me tell you, Elizabeth Warren, should she be Treasury Secretary or just generally influential in the administration, has a much more aggressive plan for dollar depreciation than the president did. She actually has a plan. You can go look at it on the Peterson website. It's authored by Fred Brixton and Joe Gagnon. And they say all the right things about how they're going to negotiate almost in a plaza-like way um, to make sure that the dollar isn't too strong. But they have specific taxes on foreign investors to make sure that the dollar goes down. And Elizabeth Warren's smart enough to have a plan and two of the best in the business to develop it for her. Should they want to try and push the dollar down, they would. I, don't, I think that's a little outside of their policy comfort zone, but I think you have to, you have to remember the the economic side of the Biden team is relatively less developed. He does have Jared Bernstein and some people around him uh, for a long time. But when it comes to the key leadership for Biden, it's really from the foreign policy side. Tony Blinken, Sherman, 
these folks who've been with him for a long time really care more about the foreign policy aspect of things. It could very well be the case that economic policy is driven by the next Treasury Secretary, whoever she is. And in that case, I think you really have to open up your mind for the possibility, at least, of active currency management. And certainly, Listen, Jason, along those lines, right that they'd let it go down benignly. Yeah, uh, along those lines, you know, one of the debates people always have when they want to be short the dollars versus what, because, you know, kind of everything else is garbage. China's obviously currency has been strengthening recently, but they, they prefer to keep it low, right? And we'll pull out many tools to do so. So does that logically lead one to gold and digital currencies as a better place to play the dollar short? Or are you not that dogmatic about it? So I think the, these small markets are definitely going to enjoy a lot of renewed interest. You already saw that. Uh, some of our traders were quite involved in those um, trades. I think they are exciting. Once you get the position, um, what's happened lately is as people realize there are more risks, you just had to mop up the consensus positions. I think that actually leaves it cleaner to get into some of those trades that you're talking about, Troy. But the world cannot go into Bitcoin and gold. It has to mm-hmm. ultimately go into other you know, meaningful asset classes. And those are going to have to be the euro and the yuan. You know, we can't do all of our adjustment against Bitcoin, silver, and Canada. It yeah, just yeah. doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work. So these are small, poxied, unique, you know, idiosyncratic markets. The big moves are going to have to come against the big players. And so yeah. despite all of the problems that Europe has, it has a current account surplus, it's doing serviceably well, notwithstanding the recent setbacks of the pandemic. And the main one is China. China's interest rates are higher than Brazil, as yeah. uh, I'm sure you pointed out to some of your investors. And, you know, it's nice that they don't want to let their currency appreciate. But, you know, what choice do they have? Ultimately? Yeah, it's gravity, right? It's gravity. It's gravity. Rates that high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's great color. So you, you think there'll be broader weakness versus the major you know, trading counterparties as well as some of the alternative currencies, uh, for, at least over the medium term. Let's we'll we'll stick with the medium term. I think for some of the some of the uh, macro traders who are more prone to hyperbole, even than myself, they've gotten excited about the same things, and I can see exactly why. Which is, you could see a twenty percent move in the dollar, and no one really really blink of an blink an eye. I mean, it, we already we already had one in two thousand fourteen into fifteen that we could reverse. Uh, yep. And that even tra- take you outside the boundary. So I just think sometimes people have a failure of imagination. It's much like our outperformance around COVID. You know, people thought it was going to slice two tenths from global GDP, as we were saying otherwise. And in this situation as well, you have something that is a pendulum shift election, and people are talking about, you know, oh, it might slice ten percent off the S and P, and you know, nothing's really going to change. I just don't. Believe yeah, it is amazing how few people can do math on that corporate tax adjustment. And you didn't even mention the fact that, look, like the deductions are gone, right? <laughs> so that's going to be a real 28% uh, effective tax rate, right? It's not going to be, you know, 30% plus with 21% effective. But in any event, moving on, you know, you, you talked about the, uh, you know, the four-legged stool supporting markets recently. And, you know, could you give uh, a little bit of color on those and where you see the progress, whether it's the potential for uh, a vaccine or whether it's the abundant monetary policy support we've had so far? And then which one of those legs do you expect to break first? So in our view, markets um, stand on four legs. Making a stool for the markets is quite sturdy. Optimism about the VAX, which you mentioned, uh, active and dovish monetary policy. Uh, really extraordinary, uh, but now um, broken for a time, fiscal policy, and then finally positive data surprises, the fact the economy is growing and it's growing uh, better than we thought. Like a stool, you can lose one of those legs. So periodically, you'll have a narrative where you lose one of the legs. So um, Like fiscal recently. Exactly, like fiscal recently. People people thought the Fed was going to do a ton in August. You kind of lost some of that in September. The stool was a little wobbly. Like if you lose two of these things, you got real problems. So we're coming into a very dangerous time. If you don't have fiscal for a while and one of these vaccines causes someone to have uh, ADE, and anybody who's following vax should know what ADE is, it's essentially your body's um, rejection of the of the of the vax and it's not unprecedented either they did a cat study uh in a corona vaccine once where all the cats kind of died um so it can happen and you saw with the jenner vax that this is a possibility that you can end up with setbacks if you have no fiscal and a vax setback is like a trapdoor for the market 
Similarly, if the data rolls over and you don't have monetary policy for whatever reason, then that's a big problem. Like there are just some combinations of things that are well within the, the data generating process that can be pretty unpleasant. And the biggest one I'm worried about is we'll know probably by the end of the day whether a fiscal deal could possibly come together. But should they vote and get out of town, you're in this period of time into Q1 where there's no fiscal. Uh, people are literally starving. I mean, I, I have great empathy um, for the kind of economic challenges that people are facing. And um, then if the perception is that the economy is rolling over or the VAX is a late 2021 story, then I think your risk taking is um, definitely um, under under some degree of siege. Well, not to mention the contested election, which you think is an above 50% probability outcome, right? So perhaps Florida will go Biden, that'll go away. But clearly, if it doesn't, and it ends up in Pennsylvania, it's going to be a complete mess. So we, we don't have that much time yet. And, you know, given your expertise on the Fed, we wanted to discuss that with you. And, you know, at least we've historically seen substantial continuity in Fed policy from president to president. You know, is that your expectation this time? And could you see any curve walls coming out of the Fed in the near term that markets are underappreciating? So there, there are two things to understand about this um, about this Fed, and this will sound a little glib, but it's important to understand. Jay Powell likes to be liked, and so he's not he's not an academic, he's not even a technocrat. He harkens back to a, a Greenspanian tradition where the Fed is working within the government. Um, I worked for Greenspan, and he always said we're we're one government. And that was something that was um, uh, not put on hold. Obviously, Ben and Janet were very involved in dealing with um, the rest of the government, especially through the crisis. But their perspective was always a very academic one. Jay's perspective is a practical one. And so he wants to work with the government to do whatever. And so he's opened up the, opened up the possibility for the Fed to intervene in all kinds of markets. A marker I'll come back to in just a moment. Uh, but the other thing to understand is that people have a very a kind of monochromatic view about the Fed. They just say, are they dovish or not? They just look at things on the distribution of hawk and doves. And it misses the key feature of this Fed. Jay Powell is just as dovish or more dovish than Janet and, and Ben and even Greenspan would have been. But the point is there's another axis. Draw yourself a y-axis where they're all dovish out here and they're right on the x-axis. He is a guy on the dimension of discretion versus rules or kind of a more academic approach to policy commitments and so on. He is a guy who believes that discretion is optimal. Again, his favorite Fed chair was Greenspan. Greenspan, I, I was with him all the time about this. He, he always knew where the exit doors were and he was never gonna foreclose any of them. The academic approach to monetary policy, uh, some of which I contributed, is the opposite. It is Odysseus tying himself to the mass to make sure that you know, and everybody else knows that everybody else knows that they're gonna be dovish according to a rule for five years. Jay doesn't believe any of that. And I can't emphasize how important that is. Because he believes discretion is optimal, he's always going to kind of keep his powder dry, react quickly. He'll do the dovish thing, but he's not going to do the kinds of things that the market does. And I'll give you a few specific examples of how you could have understood the, the last few uh, months based on that. People thought, oh, he'll do negative rates. He doesn't believe in any of that. Yeah. He thinks it's nuts. Well, that's, a, that's a political loser. I mean, that's that's never going to happen unless every other thing is there's is zero probability event. Yeah, um, yield curve control. No way. Not unless things got crazy out of hand because it, it ties his hands. Now economists think it's good to tie your hands because it's a credible commitment. Jay doesn't believe that. He thinks that tying your hands ties your hands, and that's objectively bad. So you need to understand that he always thinks that discretion is optimal. And that's why, you know, the next disappointment for the market is gonna be people think that the next thing they do is they're gonna ramp up QE. They're not gonna ramp up QE because there's no support for it. They, like practically minded people don't see the need to do QE. Economists think you should do more QE, but he doesn't. And so understanding this discretion versus rules dimensionality to them, I think is really important. The other thing you need to understand about this Fed, it's always the case that the Fed will open up some possibility and then the next Fed chair or some Fed chair subsequent will walk the Fed through it authoritatively. So it's certainly the case that Jay did intervene authoritatively in credit markets and munis to a lesser extent in Main Street and so on. The thing you need to keep in mind, and this is a, truly is a medium term point because it comes around to the next Fed chair who will come in uh, February 2021. The next Fed chair is going to see that Jay intervened in every market and broke every taboo and say, oh, well, I can do that too. 
You know, Jay committed the original sin in credit markets. He committed the original sin in munis in buying Illinois and MTA. He committed the original sin in backstopping Main Street. And you could say, oh, well, Illinois is not a good credit, Jason. Come on, man. You know, full faith, full faith and credit. No, so, but, <laughs> but that's exactly the point. We're all laughing about this, but you have a Fed chair, uh, the next Fed chair who cares more about social justice goals. Wall Street's going to get a big shock because the Fed balance sheet. You know, Ben Bernanke did some QE. Then he did some more QE. Then Jay comes along and does the biggest QE in uh, history. Just as that progression worked, where you opened up the possibility and then somebody else did it big, the same thing is going to happen in pursuit of, you know, social justice goals. So Wall Street is used to the Fed balance sheet being Wall Street's backstop. What I'm telling you in plain English is in the future, under the next Fed chair, that balance sheet will be served in service of broader goals. It's already right there in the statement of principles where they've um, expanded their notion of what full employment is to be more inclusive. So as an example, LA Unified, a bankrupt school district, will have to issue bonds. The Fed's gonna buy them in 2025. And this is another thing that I think is important for the dollar trade, which maybe other people don't uh, talk about. So maybe I'll add one bit to a pretty standard macro narrative, which is that the rest of the world is gonna hate it. The Fed expanding its balance sheet to buy distressed public debt for social justice goals is not like the placard you want to put on your reserve currency. The Germans won't approve of that? Is that what you're getting at? You know? The Chinese are not going to think it's very clever that they're yeah. buying U.S. paper that's being used to bail out LA Unified. Well said, Jason. You know, it's really interesting uh, along those lines. You know, some folks took it as a disappointment, you know, that the Fed was more explicit in inflation targeting recently. But, you know, the recent meeting, they came out and said, hey, guys, we're not hiking until 2023 at the soonest. And basically, we're not doing it until we get back to a labor market that's equal to or better than what we saw in 19. At the same time, they ratcheted up their growth forecast substantially because, as you highlighted before, the economy never contracted as much as people feared. It's already arguably back to 96, 96 and a half cents in the dollar. So wasn't that a very bullish statement on the real economy, meaning that we're going to have ample Fed support for a long, long time, even though things aren't really nearly as bad as people feared? Let's ignore the market because then you get into valuations and money supply, but focus directly on the real economy. Wasn't that an incredibly bullish announcement for the real economy? So this is where I push back on you, and I'll, I'll try to use some casual. Oh, feel free. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll try to use some casual examples. Um, commitment matters. They made no commitments. They made cheap talk commitments, which are subject to revision later on. So That's I'll ask you to invite the conversation. Um, many of us on this call are married. Suppose I went to my spouse and said, we don't really be, need to be married. We don't need that commitment because I just promise you, like in five years, things are going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Let's not be married. Everyone, in the, everyone on the call realized that's like cuckoo. Nobody believes that because you have to make the commitment. And you make the commitment in front of everybody else to know that it's credible. The Fed made no commitment. It's a soft focus uh, commitment of intentions. So, you know, when Jay was trying, when people tried to nail down the jello in the press conference of what Jay was saying, he's like, there's no formulaic rule. You know, I'm not going to tell you how much we overshoot. There's no, there's nothing of Bernanke in what he said. Bernanke spent uh, much of his research time after he was chair developing systems and rules and commitments to make the Fed more credible and more dovish, more robustly dovish to reset inflation expectations. He had this temporary look back uh, rule on price level targeting. Jay doesn't believe in any of that. So that's not happening. So this commitment is about as good as my commitment that I'm going to go lose 20 pounds. You're like, yeah, you probably will. But unless I see the gym membership and you going every day, I don't believe it. Yeah. So I believe that he's a good guy. He's an amazing public servant. Uh, he's in, he's probably one of the best Fed chairs ever, if not the best Fed chair in dealing with the politics of the place. But when it comes to the canon of what he believes in, what investors don't understand is they think there's this uninterrupted arc from Bernanke to Yellen to Powell. There's a huge discontinuity because he believes discretion is optimal and Bernanke and Yellen, even though they're dovish, do not. They believe you have to commit to some rules in order to get better outcomes. 
And he's not committing to anything. He's just saying, like, don't worry, rates will be zero for a while. And in that so, regard, so that's that back regard, to your the that's back to your y-axis argument, right? Where hey, even though they said it, and and you and I can look at it and say, hey, maybe we'll be back to a similar labor market at the end of 2022. So since he didn't give a firm commitment, right, and he has the y-axis of discretion, they could hike in 2022, right? It's a possibility. Whereas if they firmly committed, you know, I, I tend to, I, I'm actually more downbeat on the economy than certainly the consensus, but they could. And the fact that I know that they could means that, um, you know, that commitment lacks as much credibility as if you tied yourself to the mast like uh, Odysseus and had the crew put in the, put in the, uh, put in the earplug. So I think it's a really important distinction. It seems like a technical one, but a lot of the reason why you see so many frustrated Wall Street analysts, the Dave Zerboses, the Krishna Guhas, et cetera, is that they've misjudged the man. They keep looking for him to behave like the economists that they love, who are going to do the Bernanke-style stuff or um, Japanese-style commitments and so on. There's no there there when it comes to Jay. He doesn't believe in any of that. Not Jason, come on, man. You love Zervos. You love Zervos. I know you do. I love Dave. I love Dave. <laughs> he is enormously no, at the moment. Jason, it's been fascinating having this discussion with you today. And obviously your intellect shines through as well as your ability to frame complex problems and articulate them incredibly concisely. But we're going to turn it over to you know, my colleague and partner, John Darcy, to wrap things up. And we want to thank everyone you know, for being on the line and uh, tuning in for our uh, latest SALT Talks. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, and, and I could let you guys go on for another two hours, I think, and it would be rich and uh, in great content. And we're, we're sort of in salt overtime here, but I'm not going to cut this one short because I think it's fascinating. Um, we have a couple audience questions and a couple follow-ups from our agenda as well. So I, I think what's unique about you, Jason, is that you have the academic side of you know, monetary policy and economics down, but you're also a practitioner. You're on two investment committees at Swarthmore and at the Brookings Institute. So I want you to distill everything that you're talking about from an economic perspective. You talked a little bit about the dollar and, and some relative value trades there, but you know, what should investors uh, be doing right now? Maybe talk about the average high net worth investor. How should they be position, positioning their portfolio uh, based on some of the economic factors that you've talked about? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and punctuate a couple of the points I've made into some simple investment uh, advice for, for what it's worth. But at least this is the way I think about when I put on my public service hat and I'm sitting on those investment committees at Brookings and it's worth more. I'm really operating with uh, two things in mind. The first principle is stay as far away from the Fed as possible. The Fed is going to destroy excess returns in those markets where they uh, choose to intervene or they're likely to spill over and intervene further still in. So uh, I want to avoid the Fed because the Fed is the enemy of alpha. An example of that for uh, as an example, I saw a wonderful profile of um, Toma Brava in the Wall Street Journal the other day, which is a company that does um, uh, software, uh, software private equity. They have super low duration because they get into the companies and get out uh, within five years. That's a great business to be in. That is orthogonal to what the Fed's doing. It's as far away from the Fed as possible. It's in a specific industry. It's PE um, and, uh, and it has low duration. So that's a specific example of staying far away from the Fed. If you are going into the standard kind of carry style investments, you're getting stepped on by the Fed. So those are not as attractive investments. The second thing is that I, again, just think it's naive to think that this macro landscape, uh, because it's been relatively quiescent coming out of the pandemic part of the crisis, is going to remain the same. There are all kinds of things that are changing in the policy sphere, and we're doing all kinds of things in order to try and you know, it's not a very sophisticated way to say it, but basically what we're doing is we're mortgaging a lot of our policy credibility in fiscal and in monetary policy. And eventually, like anything, we sometimes trade off these big discontinuities, but investors should be aware that we're moving into a very different um, environment when it comes to the macro, because we're, uh, we're living on borrowed time when it comes to, um, when it comes to our policy uh, credibility. And that Centrally goes to uh, the dollar. I also saw. I don't know what your time constraint is, but I saw in the Q and A one thing that I could use to expand on a comment. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so I saw someone asked about consumer confidence, and I just want to I want to expand on that point to explain why our perspective about the economy maybe is different from some uh, perspectives that you're used to, especially on Wall Street and many of the prominent forecasting houses. They have a very financial conditions index centric view of the economy. Basically, like 
if stocks and housing go up uh, in wealth, then the economy is going to do well. So I'm an empiricist ultimately, and I kind of not a hedgehog, more of a fox. I believe in the toolbox kit to thinking about economics and, and finance and markets. So I go into the toolbox, pick the right tool and go ahead. One of the things we've observed over the last decade is that the linkage, the beta, if you will, between wealth and those financial conditions indexes and the real economy is broken. So if there's one reason to understand why we think that consumer confidence, is, which is levitated by the improvement in the stock market and the housing market and so on, is not so well translating over time into real growth, is that that relationship broke uh, around about the middle of the last cycle. And you can appreciate that by noticing that consumer spending in the last cycle was slowing down as wealth was even kind of hitting a, a further gear up. And we think the same thing's gonna happen this time. There are lots of reasons why, income inequality, different betas about spending for different kinds of households is what I mean there. Um, people don't believe that the wealth is real. They think that they could run into another crisis, so they're more conservative. They build up bigger buffer stocks of savings. But I think it's just important to understand our background perspective of the economy is really pretty different from some others because we think this kind of Wall Street to Main Street linkage, which did work before the 2008 period, um, just hasn't been in the just hasn't been in the data for uh, for a long time. Well, Jason, we're going to leave it there. I think there's so much to talk about with you. I think let's plan to have you on after the election. Hopefully, you know, maybe two weeks after the election, once we know the outcome. You know, uh, hence your prediction that we're going to have some level of uncertainty after November 3rd. But you know, we have a growing relationship with Brevin Howard. Have a lot of respect for the firm and for you. So we look forward to hopefully having you on in the future, and hopefully back at one of our in-person salt conferences in the future as well, once things get a little bit back to normal. I'd be delighted and hearkening back to my professorial experience uh, in advance of the uh, in advance of our meeting after the election. I encourage everyone as homework to read the Electoral Count Act if they can if they can figure it out. Uh, you know, Jason, I'm going to get right on that as soon as I get off this call. But I wanted to thank you again uh, for all your uh, intellect. It's a fascinating speaking with you. 